Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my ghouls and ghasts, for your creepy, delicious Friday. Today, I have for you four tales the masks we wear. Where normally masks are usually to conceal, this mask can set you free. The disappearance of Ashley, Kansas, straight through a fissure in the ground. Twelve minutes where a man is driven insane and irreverent starts it all. And the Alice Killings, a serial killer with a calling card. Literally. Hook yourselves in and join me for the ride, mates. And turn the lights off. The sound up, and let's get ready for something different. The Masks We Wear I wear a mask every day. If truth be told, we all do. Not literally, of course. Humans have worn masks forever. Whether it be for ceremony or protection, fashion, theatre, or disguise, masks are the faces we sometimes don. There's one thing in common that's shared across all the masks we wear. They conceal. Sometimes we cover our faces because we're afraid. A doctor might wear a mask to avoid germs, as does a welder to stop sparks. Baseball catchers need masks to stop poor pitchers as do divers to prevent fatal accidents. Sometimes, the mask is used for ceremonies, rituals, and dances. On Halloween, traditions hold that sporting a mask confuses wandering spirits. In theater of the arts, masks create characters that veil the actor underneath. At masquerade balls, the ornamental masks were barriers between a person's true self and the persons they had to be allowing the wearer permission to act as they please. Even the internet is, in and of itself, a mask, shrouding its users with an anonymous face. As for me, my fascination with masks started when I wore one during my therapy sessions at the clinic. My counselor said they're a useful tool to aid me in seeing my true self. What is my true self? I'd always ask. Your true self is the person you wish to see in the mirror, she was saying. The person the mask represents is the person you are inside. Allow yourself to express your true persona. In the mask? I would ask. Yes, she would say. For example, let's suppose that I'm your former physician, Dr. Childs. Using the mask, express... How you truly feel about me? I was silent. She leaned forward. Pretend I'm Dr. Childs. You aren't you today. You are the mask. Let the mask express how you feel about Dr. Childs. She said, pointing to herself. I hate you. I whimpered, bawling my fist. That's good, she said. That's progress. It's okay to feel angry. We all feel angry. Sometimes we just mask our emotions and bottle them up. Mask our emotions? I spoke. Yeah, we all do it. 
she said. But at the end of the day, we feel how we feel. We are who we are. I now know what she meant. How we love to conceal how we truly feel. I watch waiters be spat on by customers, smiling and nodding when they really want to knock their teeth out. Or how parents shush screaming kids, sometimes wanting to wring their necks. I see people bite their tongues when they want to scream, hold back tears when they want to cry. No one acts how they truly feel. Well, not me. Not anymore. I've decided to take off my mask, to be who I truly am. No longer a slave to Dr. Child's insults and rants. No longer a subject of therapies, medicines, and exams. I am going to be free. And sometimes, that means donning a new mask. I mean, my entire existence has been one. A mask, that is. Day after day, I've lived behind it, grinning through lying teeth as if I were just some normal person. I am not. I am who I am. I've realized that now. Besides, I like my new mask a whole lot better. This one, far more literal. The Disappearance of Ashley, Kansas Sometime during the night of August 16, 1952, the small town of Ashley, Kansas ceased to exist. At 3.28am on August 17, 1952, a magnitude 7.9 earthquake was measured by the United States Geological Survey. The earthquake itself was felt throughout the state and most of the Midwest. The epicenter was determined to be directly under Ashley, Kansas. When state law enforcement arrived at what should have been the outskirts of the farming community, they found a smoldering, burning fissure in the earth measuring 1,000 yards in length and approximately 500 yards in width. The depth of the fissure was never determined. Out of the 12 days, the statewide and local search for the missing 679 residents of Ashley, Kansas was called off by the Kansas state government at 9.15pm on the night of August 29, 1952. All 679 residents were assumed to be dead. At 2.27am on August 30th, 1952, a magnitude 7.5 earthquake was measured by the United States Geological Survey. The epicenter was situated under what used to be Ashley, Kansas. When law enforcement investigated at 5.32am, they reported that the fissure in the earth had closed. In the eight days leading up to the disappearance of the town and its 679 residents, bizarre and unexplainable events were reported by dozens of residents in Ashley, Kansas, and law enforcement from the surrounding area. On the evening of August 8th, 1952, at 7.13pm, a resident by the name of Gabrielle Jonathan reported a strange sight in the sky above Ashley. The town itself, having no official branch of law enforcement, called into the police station of the neighboring town of Hayes. Gabriel reported what appeared to be a small, 
black opening in the sky. Within the next 15 minutes, the Hayes police station became overwhelmed with dozens of phone calls all reporting the same phenomenon. This phenomenon was never reported by any neighboring communities. A decision was made to send of a trooper to Ashley to investigate the matter the following morning. At 7.54 a.m. on the morning of August 9, 1952, Hayes Police Officer Alan Mace radioed the Hayes Police Station. He reported that despite following the one-way road leading into Ashley, he had become lost. According to his report, the road continued along its normal path, but somehow ended up back in Hayes. Officer Mace went on to add that the road never curved or bent in any direction. At 9.15 a.m., seven of the town's ten police cars were sent to investigate the situation, and all members of the team came to the same conclusion. The only road leading into Ashley stopped leading into Ashley, but instead led back to Hayes. Phone calls continued to pour into the Hayes police station, all reporting that the black opening in the sky continued to grow in size. All callers were advised to remain inside and to not travel outside unless absolutely necessary. At 8.17pm, Mrs. Elaine Cantor reported her neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Milton, and their two children, Jeffrey and Brooke, missing. According to Mrs. Cantor's phone call, the Miltons attempted to leave town in their family car earlier in the evening. They never returned. Law enforcement officials from Hayes never reported the car or individuals coming up the one-way road. At 7.38 a.m. on the morning of August 10th, 1952, phone calls from Ashley into the Hayes police station reported that the town was in total darkness. The sun had never risen. At 10.15 a.m., at the request of Hayes law enforcement, a helicopter from Topeka, Kansas, flew over the region in which Ashley, Kansas stood. The town was never observed from air. At 12.23 p.m. on the afternoon of August 1952, Miss Phoebe Danielowinski called into the Hayes police station. She reported that her daughter, Erica, had begun to have conversations with her father, who died three years prior in a drunk driving accident. To add to her concern, Miss Daniela Winsky reported that Erica was attempting to go outside into the dark to join them. Over the course of the next 12 hours, a report of 329 phone calls were placed into the Hayes police station, all describing similar phenomenon with the children of the town. The following morning of August 12, 1952, the situation became dire. During the middle of the night, all 217 children in the town of Ashley, Kansas, disappeared. A reported 421 phone calls were placed into the Hayes Police Department. Unable to be of any useful assistance, Hayes Law Enforcement instructed all callers to remain inside and to avoid any and all attempts at finding the missing children. At 5.19 p.m. on the evening August 13, 1952, Ashley, elderly man Scott Luntz reported a growing, distant fire to the south. According to its description, the fire seemed to turn the distant black 
into bright red and orange that seemed to extend high into the sky. Throughout the rest of the day, calls continued in, stating that the fire, in addition to moving north, now seemed to come out of the black sky. No fire was ever witnessed by any of the neighboring communities or law enforcement officials. The reports continued until 12.09am on the morning of August 14th, 1952. The last phone call, placed by Mr. Benjamin Endicott, reported that the fire in the sky had grown so intense that it began to appear as daytime over the town. The phone call ended abruptly. From the phone call placed by Benjamin Sherman Endicott. Benjamin. Just hold on. Wait. Continued silence. Yeah, yeah, I see something. It's to the south, it looks like. End phone call. The next phone call wouldn't be placed until the following evening. The following is the entire transcript of the final phone call to be received by the Hayes Police Department out of the town of Ashley, Kansas. It was placed at 9.46 p.m. on the evening of August 15th, 1952. In this recorded phone call, the officer on duty is Officer Peter Welch. The caller has been identified as Miss April Foster. Begin phone call. Hayes Police Department, muffled static. Hello? Yes, yes, hello? Ma'am, who am I speaking with? My name is April. April Foster. <coughs> please, sir. Please help me. What is happening, ma'am? Last night. Last night they came back. Ma'am, I'm going to need you to- Last night they came back! Ma'am, I'm going to need you to calm down and speak clearly. What happened? Who came back? Everyone? They all came in the fire. What do you mean, everyone? My son. I saw my son last night. He was walking. He was walking down the street. He was burned. Jesus Christ. He was burned. Ma'am, I... He died last year. I raised him since he was a baby. It was just me and him. I told him to watch for cars when he rode his bike, but he never wanted to listen. Ma'am, what you're saying isn't making any sense. You said everyone came back? Are you fucking listening to me? Everyone! Everyone came back! Everyone who died and went missing? They're back. And they're looking for us! He, he said, Mummy, I'm okay now. See, I can walk again? Where are you, Mummy? I want to see you. Ma'am, where are you now? Are you safe? I'm hiding. Just like everyone else. We saw them coming through the fields, and some people opened their doors for them. God, they're screaming. I don't know what happened to them, but their houses caught fire and they caved in. I have my curtains drawn. I'm hiding in the closet right now, and... Ma'am, is everything all right? Are you okay? Ma'am? Oh, oh my God. Ma'am. Something just came in. Ma'am, stay as quiet as you can. Don't make a sound. He came inside. Stay absolutely still. Don't leave. Daddy, where are you hiding? 
Stay quiet. Ma'am? Ma'am? End phone call. The following morning, at 6.55 a.m., the law enforcement officials of the Hayes Police Department arrived at the location of Ashley, Kansas. A smoldering, burning fissure in the earth was all that remained. Twelve minutes. In the fall of 1987, local news channel WSB-TV2 of Atlanta, Georgia, was attempting to fill a scheduling gap in their Sunday morning lineup. After a few solicitations from local business owners, they decided to allow the young Reverend Marley Sachs to take the available hour block to do a religiously themed show. It premiered October 18th with little promotion. This show was standard religious fare and consisted of the reverend sitting in a simple chair reading passages from the Bible to the camera and discussing their interpretation and significance to our modern day-to-day -day life. The show received a reasonable number of viewers and continued to be shown in early December. It was then that the studio began to receive extremely strange complaints from viewers of Words of Light with the Rev Marley Sachs. The calls were from women, and women only, who vaguely referred to uncomfortable feelings they had at very specific intervals during the program. They described the feeling of nausea, back pain, dizziness, and blurred vision. These callers, for no discernible reason, were convinced that it was the viewing of this program that was causing these symptoms. It was later determined after three weeks of complaints that these feelings were happening at roughly 12-minute intervals during the course of the program. The small studio staff checked all recording equipment, both audio and video, and found nothing faulty. When the Reverend was made aware of these incidents, he merely shrugged and stated, Some can't handle the voice of God. The head of the studio, at a loss to explain the cause of these complaints, decided to continue running the program. By February, viewership had dropped sharply, and it was decided to pull the plug on the show. The studio head figured it would be more prudent to spend as much time as possible on the news story that had the other two local news networks abuzz, the miscarriage epidemic. Starting sometime in November, the number of healthy pregnant women miscarrying in the Atlanta metropolitan area had reached over 300. The CDC could find no discernible cause for this terrifying occurrence. The Reverend took the show's cancellation with what could be only described as abject indifference. When informed, he made no protest, merely nodded, almost knowingly. He left the studio after the last episode was filmed without so much as a word and dropped off the face of the earth. No one ever heard from him again, not his former congregation or any member of his church. The studio moved on, filling the slot with an infomercial and continued to concentrate on the miscarriage story. A year and a half later, an intern at the WSB studios discovered the tapes of the Words of Light and began going through them in an attempt to find stock footage from an upcoming piece the station was doing on the impact that religion has on the city. 
The Atlantic Incident, as the miscarriage epidemic became known as in medical journals, petered out three months after the studio had cancelled Reverend Sax's show and had already began to fade from the public consciences. As the intern went through the tapes, he accidentally made a disturbing discovery about the footage. While attempting to stop one recording at 10 minutes and 45 seconds, he mistakenly jammed the fast forward button down. While the footage whizzed by, he attempted to pry up the button with a screwdriver just as he succeeded. The tape stopped at 32 minutes and one second. The intern actually fell out of his chair when he looked up at what was frozen on the screen, the image of a badly decomposed severed head filling up the entire frame. After he collected himself, he moved the film back a few frames, then forward and realized that his mind was not playing tricks on him. He began going through the rest of the recording and soon discovered that at exactly 12 minute intervals, the image would appear for one frame. Thinking at some practical joke being played on the new guy, he presented it to one of the film technicians, ready to be mocked. The technician was just as puzzled as him. No one had touched the footage since the cancellation of the show. After the studio had closed for the night, the intern convinced the tech to help him go through all of the tapes of the words of light. They discovered that every single episode had the same horrifying anomaly. They also realized that as the show progressed, the image had become more disgusting. As maggots began to eat away at the loose flesh and pieces of hair and skin seemed to have fallen off exponentially. The tech made clear to the intern that what they were seeing was technically impossible, since the film itself showed absolutely no signs of splicing. And he himself had been at every filming of the show and knew of no time when this image could have been inserted into the frame. All of this was presented to the studio head, who fearing some kind of backlash over allowing this to get on the air, ordered all the tapes to be destroyed. He told the intern and tech that he had no interest in knowing who did it at this point, only that covering our collective asses is all that's important now. He demanded that they mention this to no one. The tech easily moved on, remembering this as a darkly funny personal anecdote. But the intern wouldn't let it go. He made copies of as many tapes as he could before they were wiped, and took them to see if he could find anything else in them that might point to who did this or why they would. A week later, he attempted to rope the tech into helping him again, saying that he believed he may have discovered something even more disturbing than the images themselves. When the single frames were edited together in chronological order, the head's mouth appears to be moving as if trying to form words. The tech, fearing for his job, told him to get rid of the copies and to not talk about it again. A week later, police responded to a 911 call made by an elderly woman in one of the Atlanta suburbs at dusk. She had heard horrible noises coming from her next door neighbor's house where a young couple lived. She told the emergency responder that the wife was pregnant and that she was terrified that something had happened. When the officers arrived on the scene 20 minutes later, they found no lights on in the windows and the front door ajar. They moved in slowly and made their way into the living room. Inside, 
they found a young woman with her abdomen slashed open. The wound was jagged and the trail of blood led from the body to the couch on the far end of the room. There sat her husband, the studio intern, naked, the corpse of his unborn child at his feet, dying. In his hand he held a rusty piece of metal siding that he had used to gut his pregnant wife. The television was on and playing a 18-second loop of silent footage of a decomposing head mouthing some unintelligible words. The story at the police precinct to this day goes that the intern kept saying under his breath over and over again as they led him away. The light of God calls them. The light of God calls them. Written by Robo Key The Alice Killings The Alice Killings remain to this day one of the strangest and unsolvable serial killings in Japan. From 1995 to 2005, a series of five killings took place. The five killings might have been completely different if not for the calling card that the killer left at each crime scene. He would leave a playing card. It varied from killing to killing. At each scene, in an obvious location that had Alice written on it in the victim's blood. Very few clues were found at each crime scene and eventually the case went cold. Below are details of each killing. Sasaki Megumi The first victim was Sasaki Megumi, a 29-year-old owner of a restaurant. Those who knew her described her as a headstrong woman with a short temper and a sharp tongue when dealing with her employees. She was known by her customers for her fine cooking and her dedication to her job. Outside of her job, Megumi was very social and often went to parties. It was after one such party that she went missing. She decided to walk home from her friend's house, seeing as she was only a block from home, and she was a bit too drunk to drive. Several people offered to drive her home, but she shrugged it off. She was seen leaving the party at one in the morning, and this is the last time she was seen alive. The next morning, a couple walking in the woods, about a mile from Megumi's house, saw a large amount of blood on an overgrown, unused path. Curious, they followed it, where they found Megumi's body. She had been torn apart, her parts impaled on various tree branches. The couple called the police. It was the police that found the playing card crammed into Megumi's mouth. It was a jack of spades, which had the words Alice written on it, as previously mentioned. There were no fingerprints or any DNA to be found. There was vomit on the scene, but the female of the couple admitted that it was hers. The second victim, Yamane Akio. Yamane Akio was a barely known singer in a band that never played anything more than at various bars and community functions. His friends described him as a kind-hearted man who would never raise his voice off stage. After his death, his band fell apart, not having the heart to find a new singer. Akio was abducted from his apartment on February 11th, 2001. His bandmates were the last people to see him alive, as he practiced with them earlier in the day. That night, his girlfriend came to visit him and was surprised to find the house empty. Within days, a missing persons report was filed and a search for him began. On the security footage of the apartment, a hooded figure could be seen entering through a side door and leaving with a large garbage bag that bulged strangely. This strange appearance was never accounted for, and no one saw the strange man in person 
This man is widely believed to be the killer, but his face was never shown, and there appears to be some doubt. The following week, the owner of the bar, Yoshida's, where the band had often performed, was open for the day and was met with a grisly sight. Slumped at a table was Akio's body. His vocal cords had been ripped from his throat and he had been shot in the head. His Alice card was a king of diamonds and was found clutched in his hands along with his ruined vocal cords. The next victim, Kai Sakura. A teenage girl, Kai Sakura, had her whole life ahead of her. She was a sweet girl and well-loved by her classmates and relatives. She wanted to go to college to be a fashion designer and was a week from graduating high school when she was abducted. Sakura's family was frantic trying to find her and the whole town was combed for the lost girl. Her body was found two days later, buried in a shallow grave. It didn't seem that the killer wanted her hidden. On the contrary, he had marked her grave with her Alice playing card, the Queen of Clubs. It had been taped to a stick and stuck on the top of the grave. Sakura's body had been horribly mutilated. Her eyes had been carved from her body, her skin was flayed, and her mouth had been carved open. A crown had been sewn to her head, likely while she was still alive. No sexual crimes had been committed either pre or post-mortem. Along with Sakura's body was a note written in straggly handwriting. It contained many disjointed phrases, some of which were unreadable. Death is a distorted dream. She will forever rule. And, haha, those which die are the lucky ones. Were various phrases that had been written, among others. A match to the handwriting was never found. The next and final victim, Oshiro Hayato and Hina. These two were the last of the killings and the least gruesome. Hayato and Hina were siblings and very close. Hina was their elder sister and was very stubborn. Her younger brother Hayato was very smart and had skipped a grade, causing him to be in the same class as his beloved sister. The two rarely fought as most siblings the two rarely fought, as most siblings tended to do. The two were found dead in their beds on April 4th, 2005. The cause of death was a lethal injection. The children's bedroom window was open, and it was deduced that the killer snuck in quietly enough to kill the two without waking them, then snuck back out. Each child held half of an Ace of Hearts playing card that, when put together, spelled out the word Alice. One very smudged footprint was found on the carpet, but closer inspection was made impossible by the severe damage done to the print. This was the only piece of evidence other than the playing card left at the scene. A year later, the mother of Hayato and Hina committed suicide out of grief. Their father, who is still alive to this day, is going through extensive therapy to get over the death of his entire family. At this moment, he is extremely depressed and heavily medicated. Aftermath. Shortly after the death of the Oshiro siblings, a man named Suzuki Yuto was arrested for the murders. He was a bum with mental problems who claimed to not remember where he was at at the time of the murders. Most damning of all, he was seen wearing a coat that had belonged to Yamane Akio. A bit of blood on the sleeve tested positive to be his. Yuto was eventually released when a homeless shelter five miles from the Kai household claimed to have Yuto in their files for the night of Sakura's murder. 
since there was no way for him to get to where she was abducted and back without being noticed, Yuto was released. On April 30th, 2008, a producer known as Yugami P uploaded his first song to Nikko Video called Hito Bashira Aresu, translated roughly as Alice of Human Sacrifice. This song is believed to be based off of the Alice killings. It tells the story of a little dream who lures people into its world and then goes on to tell the story of each Alice. The song has a few parallels with each killing. The first Alice to pick it as Meiko was trapped in the woods which is where Megumi's body was found. The second Alice depicted as Kayato was a singer who was shot by a madman. And the third Alice depicted as Hatsune Miku was well loved, became the country's queen and was taken over by a distorted dream. The fourth Alice depicted as Kagamine Rin was a pair of twins regarded as one Alice. They are described as a stubborn big sister and intelligent brother. It also speaks of how they have yet to awaken, a possible reference to them dying in their sleep. In addition, the suits of cards found with each body are also mentioned. Yugami P has not stated for sure if this song has any relation to the Alice killings, but it is widely assumed. Written by Big Mouth 12349. Well, listeners, nothing like a creepy set of stories to warm the soul. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more from this podcast, subscribe and I'll be sharing all sorts of stories with you three times a week, blasting you in your ear. Should you have a couple of seconds spare, visit my iTunes page and leave a review to awesome people like you also hear about the show. And lastly, this show is supported by Patreon supporters, so if you think you can spare a cup of tea a month for the show, you can visit my Patreon page in the show notes and do just that. Now, it's time to thank my current Patreons. First up is my Ode Night Tea Titan, the legendary Maya, Queen of the Cats. Thank you so much, mate, for your ongoing support. You are a shining star in the darkest of nights, a beacon guiding this podcast to the next best thing. Just wanted to let you know that thanks to you, I've been able to repair some more detailed old-time radio episodes from the Sherlock era, and I can't wait to share them with you and everyone this coming Monday. Super sharp and repolished as always. Gonna be so much fun. Thank you, Maya, for helping me make that happen. You're awesome. My white tea warlord, Leza Bowser, thanks Dudio for your awesome self and supporting this show. I've been purchasing new music and new plugins for Photoshop. Thanks to you, I can actually flex my creative metal from a graphic standpoint at least. And we'll be putting those tools to good use on YouTube and Facebook. Thank you so much, mate. You're marvelous. And my second white tea warlord, Paige Arama Kramer. Thank you, Paige, for being spectacular as always. The pop filter finally came in. I've added it into the Patreon show notes, and dare I say, this filter is visually delicious. You know when you get something new and it's so crispy fresh, so on point awesome that you're blown away at the craftsmanship? This is a good example. This thing feels damn solid. I'll include a picture of it in the Patreon post so all of you can see what I mean. Cheers, Paige, and all of you supporters for helping me source this. You're brilliant. And my epic old grain forces, the peeps that are my frontline charges into the war on boredom and propagators of storytelling. 
I am lucky to have. Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cal, Michelangelo Yacone, divided by zero, and Leah Fassig. Thank you all for being so damn fantastic, and I can't wait till Monday to see you once more and share with you more old-time radio episodes. Have a wonderful weekend, you wonderful people. As always, folks, till next we meet.